Jonah, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. May God bless this reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, good evening. Welcome to Grace Community Church downtown. Thank you for joining us in worship. For those of you dads, happy Father's Day. Um, Yeah, we're continuing our series in the book of Jonah. This is an awesome, awesome, short little book. And the reason we are going through this book is, well, it's the Word of God. So wherever we land in the Word of God, that's a plus. But specifically, we are targeting our hearts because Jonah was called to a specific mission. He was called to go to Nineveh. We are called to make disciples who then make disciples for the glory of God. That's just the Great Commission. It's what Grace Community Church is about. It's what the church, the body of Christ, is called to. And this, this fall, we're going to particularly focus on outreach through the sermon series. We want to encourage people to be inviting your friends, inviting your coworkers, inviting anyone who does not know uh, Christ to come and hear the preaching of the word as we're going to be looking at different encounters that people have with Jesus. But we're going to spend the summer here preparing our hearts for ministry, preparing our hearts for outreach. And what better way to do that than to look at someone whose heart was not prepared, whose heart was not prepared for mission. So last week, last week, if you were here, we got to the point where Jonah, Jason introduced the series with Jonah's call to go to Nineveh. Jonah, of course, took the opportunity to go the exact opposite direction to Tarshish, so as far as you can get away from Nineveh as possible. And last week we looked at God's loving and severe mercy as God hurled a storm in Jonah's path. And of course, the end of the story, as we looked at it last week, and it was verse 16, with him being tossed overboard, given over to death, and the storm ceased. And that's where we ended. And that's where we ended. So we pick it up here in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish, a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 is a summary for the prayer of Jonah that he prayed from the belly of this fish. Now, this, this prayer is a, it's a bunch of different compilations of Scripture from all over the place, Psalms mostly, but Jonah is praying Scripture from the belly of the whale, from the belly of the whale. So this is his prayer. And so these, this, these two verses, verses 1 and 2, summarize it. And of course, you can't get around verse 17. Verse 17 is, and the Lord appointed a great fish. And this is what most people think of when they think of Jonah. So last week, I'm preaching in the North Liberty campus during the second service. And because I'm an idiot, I didn't turn my phone off. It was silenced, but it was still on. And as I'm preaching, my phone's going, bzz, 
it's just buzzing, out of control, out of control. So after the service, I open it, and there's six or seven different emails, different text messages. Did you see about the guy who was swallowed by the whale? Did you see about the guy who was swallowed by the whale? Did you see about the guy who was swallowed by the whale? Could you use this in a sermon? Oh, I don't know. Maybe there's a slight connection. Yeah, yeah. So if you sent me a text, and I don't know if this is a North Liberty phenomenon, but they text me while I'm preaching. It happens all the time, especially my friends, especially my friends, just to annoy me. Sometimes they'll criticize my preaching as I'm preaching. But this actually happened, uh, uh, not this Friday, not less, but last Friday. This is a lobster diver off of the coast of Cape Cod. He's a scuba diver. He's picking up lobsters, and he's going about his business, and all of a sudden he describes it as if he's being hit by a truck. He's being hit by a truck, and then everything went black. Everything went black, and he thought to himself, this is it. I'm being devoured. I'm being eaten by a shark. He thought it was a great white, because he sees great whites in, 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 in these waters occasionally. But he realized, but I'm not in pain. I'm just being squeezed and compressed. So he's thinking to himself, I'm still going to die, but this is going to take a while. This is, and it, about 30 or 40 seconds later, he comes to the surface, and the whale spits him out. Spits him out. He was on Jimmy Kimmel Live this, uh, this last week. I didn't see the episode, but I read the article. They constructed a, uh, a, uh, a whale head, with, and he sat inside of it at, during the interview. Some kind of a cheesy Hollywood thing, but, but he's fine. He's fine. And this is what most people think of when, when they think of Jonah. They think of Jonah and the whale. We technically don't know if it was a whale. The Hebrew word means large aquatic creature. It could be a whale. It could be a whale shark, which is technically not a whale. But it was big, and it swallowed him. But this is not about a fish. The fish gets three whole verses. That's it. Three verses. This is about the grace of God. This is what this is about. This whole book is about the mercy and the grace of God. And it's about a prophet who didn't receive that grace until, until he found himself in the situation that he was in at the bottom of the sea. So the goal this morning is, is to be brought to the depths, metaphorically speaking, so we can meet God there and receive the only thing that will give us buoyancy spiritually, and that's the grace of God. And that's the grace of God. So three things that we're going to look at today in Jonah chapter 2 in the text. First of all, we're going to take a look at a portrait of gracelessness. Jonah is not a grace-filled individual. He is not a grace-filled. If, if you want to know what not to do, just look at Jonah and don't be like him. So he's the anti-Jesus, if you will. So we're going to take a look at a portrait of gracelessness that is Jonah before the whale. The second thing we're going to see here in the text in Jonah's prayer is the descent, the descent, the way down in understanding our need of grace. You can't receive grace. We can't receive, Jonah can't receive grace. You can't receive grace. I can't receive grace until we sense our need. So we're going to take a look at Jonah's prayer and how he expressed how he came to see the need of grace. And the third thing we're going to take a look at is the way up, responding to grace responding to grace. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, and let's 
entreat the Lord and his favor and the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Father, we come to you this evening because we need you. We need you. We, We know what grace is, technically. It's your unmerited favor. But sometimes we don't sense our need of it. And we are praying, Father, tonight that you would show us our need and that you would richly supply grace, that you would pour it out. You would fill us with your spirit, that the word of God would be alive and active as it is, and we would, we would be changed by your gospel, by your grace. We thank you, Lord, for Jonah, the book of Jonah, for, uh, for even his failures and his repentance, Lord. Help us to learn from that. And Lord, give us buoyancy to rise above our, our, uh, our flesh, to rise above our circumstances, that we might walk in the power of the Spirit today. Help me to preach for your glory that Christ might be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, first thing I want us to do is take a look at a portrait of gracelessness. So to do that, we're going to jump backwards, and we're going to take a look at where we were last week. We have to see Jonah before he was tossed over. We have to see Jonah before he was tossed over. So look in your Bibles at Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 8. This is, the sailors know something is up. This is a supernatural storm, and they, they, they figured out that Jonah's the cause. They don't know exactly why, but Jonah's the cause. And take a look at the question that they ask him. Verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew, they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So what does gracelessness look like? First of all, three things. Jonah's view, Jonah's view of his God, Jonah's view of himself, and Jonah's view of others. Okay, those three things. Let's take a look. How does Jonah view God? He fears God, but he doesn't desire his presence. That's the first mark of gracelessness. And this is epidemic within religious communities. Oftentimes people assume that they've received the grace of God because they're pseudo-religious. You're here in church on a Sunday evening. You could be doing a lot of things besides sitting at Old Brick listening to me drone on about Jonah. So I'll presume that most of you are at least open to the idea of theism. Probably most of you consider yourselves to be Christians. Most people that are moral, most people that uh, attend church, if you will, consider themselves to be religion, but religious, but that does not mean necessarily, that does not necessarily mean that we've received the grace of God. To be religious, to be moral, is not to be in a covenant relationship with God, having received his grace. Jonah fears God, but does not desire God. He told them he doesn't desire God. He's fleeing from God. So as we look out at the body of Christ, especially in our nation, I can't speak for other nations, but there's a lot of good, quote-unquote, good moral religious people, but they're not pursuing a relationship with God. It's an indication that there's not, that grace is not present. That grace is not present. Well, let's move on. Let's take a look at, at Jonah's uh, view of self. How does he identify himself? Take a look in, the, in verse 9. What's the first phrase out of his mouth? I am a what? I'm a Hebrew. Note what he didn't say. I am a child of God. 
with a covenant relationship with Yahweh. He said, I'm a Hebrew. Now that's not a wrong thing to say because it's true, right? It's true. But his primary identity is a collective identity with an ethnic group. It's like saying in our time, you know, I'm a Christian. What does that even mean? The, the, the word Christian, honestly, it's utterly meaningless in our culture. It means that, well, I identify with a whole bunch of people who love Jesus. What does that mean? It does not necessarily mean that he has a covenant relationship, that he's received the grace of God. And in our time, you say, well, yeah, Christian's meaningless. That's why I go with the term evangelical. Well, there's an even more meaningless term. Do you know what evangelical means in our culture now? Voting block. That's what it means now. You say, well, that's not what it should mean. We're not talking about what it should mean. This is just what people perceive the words of, meaning of words are. Jonah identifies himself not as a, uh, a worshiper of Yahweh, but as a Hebrew. And that, that's not necessarily wrong, but he leads with it. You look at all the different questions they asked him. That was just one of the questions, but that seems to rise to the surface. Seems to rise to the surface. Now, how about his view of others? This is where you can really, really, this is probably the most telling thing about someone who does not, hasn't received the grace of God. How do they view others? Jonah views some people as good and some people as bad. Now, who does he view as bad? Who do you think? Gentiles. In particular, the Ninevites. He doesn't want to go there. They're the bad people. So who are the good people in Jonah's worldview? The Hebrew people. So graceless people tend to look at the problems in the world and they attribute it to the other group. So if you look at a person who identifies as a moral religious Christian and you say to them in, in our time, in our day, what's wrong with America? Typically, what's the response that you get? Those people. Who are those people? The irreligious people. The people that are not like them. And who are the good people? If, more, if we just had more people, like, they wouldn't say this because that, that seems a bit, a bit off. If we had more people, well, like me, well, then America would be a better place. But when you say it out loud, it sounds uncomfortable, but that's essentially what they mean. Essentially what they mean. And in 2024, it's going to get worse because then it's not going to be necessarily just religious, but it'll be those people are ruining the country. Well, who are those people? Whatever party you're not with, it's those people. Our party's good. Their party's bad. Religious people, good. Irreligious people, bad. That is a terrible oversimplification. If you were here last week, who were the good people in the story? The pagans were doing everything they could to save Jonah, the prophet. So the one guy who's quote-unquote good is the guy that you literally want to throw over the ship because he's awful. And the guys who are, are pagans, they are trying everything they can to save this man's life. They value the sanctity of life. And the one guy who should doesn't. So that's a picture of gracelessness 
before he's tossed over. But then they toss him. They toss him. And let's take a look at what happens next. The way down. Something happens while Jonah is descending into the depths. Something happens when he is swallowed by this great fish. He encounters the grace of God. He encounters the grace of God. So the way down, this is what God does, the work that he does to prepare a heart to receive grace. So let's just take a look at the text. We're taking a look at chapter 2 here. We're starting, we're in the beginning of his prayer. Chapter 2, starting in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Okay, I want to just take a look at the text. What do you find odd about what he says? Verse 3. Who cast Jonah into the sea? If you were here last, last week, who literally threw him into the sea? The sailors. Okay. Who told them to throw him into the sea? Jonah. Jonah is attributing, you, God, tossed me into the sea. Now look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. What does he mean? If we, leave, if we read that literally, it seems as if Jonah was, was clinging to the altar. And he had his fingers pried away from the altar in the temple. And he was driven by God, kicked out of the temple, out of the presence of God. And pushed all the way to Tarshish by God. But we read the text. He ran away. This is a volitional act of rebellion. And that... Now he's blaming this on God? That, this is not, it doesn't, it's not what it appears. He's not blaming God. He's attributing, he's attributing to God. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. He's, he's essentially acknowledging, and this is the way it works with our suffering. I want you to think about a time when you've been in intense pain. It could be physical pain. It could be deep emotional pain. It could be spiritual pain. It could be a deep depression. It could be anxiety. It could be a betrayal of a loved one or a friend. It could be grief. You could have lost someone very close to you. I want you to think about that, that visceral pain. Okay? Now, at the t- moment that you're in pain, at the moment that we struggle with pain, do we not often question God's love for us? We do. We question God's love for us. But that, in hindsight, though, when we, when we then meet God in the waves and we receive the grace of God in the waves, afterwards, we see all of that painful circumstances as being orchestrated by God so that he could meet us and give us his love and his mercy. This is what Jonah's experiencing at first it's self-pity, and now he's glorifying God because he's received the grace of God. You threw me over. And yeah, it was the sailors, and yes, it was my idea, but you threw me over because without being thrown over, I would never have met your grace. 
You drove me away from Jerusalem because if I had not gone to Tarshish, I would not be at the bottom of the ocean and I would not have met your grace. He is, this is glorifying to God. He's not blaming God. He's simply acknowledging the sovereignty and the providence of God, even in his own stupidity and sin. Do you know that you can't overrule God's sovereignty with your stupidity? Thank you, Jesus, for the fact that my sin and stupidity can't screw up your plan for my life. Now, by the way, don't put that to the test. That's not an invitation. Oh, I should test that out. That's not a good idea because there are waves, storms, and fish. It's best to avoid the bottom of the sea if you can avoid it. But Jonah's thankful for it. He's thankful for it. So C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, we can ignore even pleasure. This is his book, uh, Problem of Pain. We can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain is God's megaphone, is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. So not everybody responds to God's megaphone. But then Lewis says, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It removes the veil and plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. God planted that flag of truth in Jonah's rebel soul in the depths of the ocean. It got his attention. It roused him from his slumber as he was sleeping in the the bottom of the ship. So that's the way down. The waters closed over me to take my life and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down. Look at the how verse 6, the, second, or the first half of verse 6 ends. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is a person who recognizes that there is no hope. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with addiction or you know anybody who struggles with um, self-defeating behaviors, self-destructive behaviors, but typically, what do they say a person has to reach before they're ready to change? The bottom. This is the bottom for Jonah. When you're at the bottom, you're closed in. There's no escape. There's no way out. There's no, you know what, I just need to try harder. Jonah's not, if I just swim a little harder, maybe I can get to the top. No, he's done. He's closed in. He's a prisoner. He recognizes there is no hope. There's no hope. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. And this is where grace comes crashing through. And it won't come crashing through until we recognize there's nothing you and I, nothing we can do to bring about transformative change. There's nothing that we can do to set ourselves free from bondage. We don't even desire to be set free from bondage until we are literally at the bottom. So that's the way down. Now transitions. The way up. Receiving God's grace. So Jonah is, this is it. God, I've rebelled, but you tossed me over. I'm receiving my just dessert for all my rebellion. And I'm, I'm done. I'm done. 
Verse 6 again. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars were closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O my Lord. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That word, yet, it's a, it's a conjunction, it's a contrast. This is what was happening and yet, and yet. This is what grace does. You have to see this. This is what grace does. Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we were all born in sin, dead in our trespasses, in the way we used to live when we followed the ways of the prince of the power of the air. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. This is what Jonah is experiencing. He is not metaphorically dead in his sin. He's literally going to be dead physically. Yet, yet, I love that, but God, yet, yet God, you lifted me up. You lifted me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. Salvation is all of God. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. There is a debate between Erasmus, a theologian, and Luther during the Reformation. And they were debating over the nature of God's grace. And Erasmus was saying, well, God's grace, it assists. It's, we cannot please God on our own. We cannot become righteous on our own. So we need God's grace to assist us. Assist us. And he gave this illustration. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a child who is not yet able to walk and the father comes behind the child and offers the child its fingers. And so the, the, the child grabs daddy's hands and, and you know, kind of toddles, toddles across the living room to get the object of its... It can't make it without dad's help, right? And, and so that's what grace is. And Luther's like, he probably said something profane and awful because Luther does that a lot. Um, just ask Steve separately from some awesome Luther quotes. But... He says, he says, no, 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 no. That is not what grace is. We are worms, not toddlers. We are worms encircled by a great ring of fire. The only deliverance is from the hand of God. We are not assisted in becoming righteous. We are rescued and redeemed. That's Jonah. That's the Apostle Paul. That's Pastor Jason. That's Pastor Brooks. That's you. That's your children. There's no hope apart from the grace of God. Salvation is all of the Lord. It is all grace. And yet, Jonah's not passive and nor are we in receiving this grace. Let's take a look at the text. When my life was fainting away... I remembered the Lord. Paul says, faith that comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. He remembers what he was taught. He, he is a prophet. He does know the scriptures. So he remembers the scriptures. And just as important as remembering the scriptures, he, he 
calls out, he pray, he, his prayer came to you in your holy temple. He localizes the presence of God. Now, you may not do that as, as someone who is a follower of Christ because we ourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But this is a very localized understanding of God. Not, they believed that God was um, omnipresent. They did not believe, Jonah believed that God was everywhere all at once. The Hebrews did that. But his physical presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So you go into the temple, you have the courtyard, and then you go into the holy place. You go into the holy place, and then there's the Holy of Holies, and there's the veil, the, the temple curtain. And behind that veil, in the Holy of Holies, is the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were kept, and the jar of manna, and Aaron's staff. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is, is the lid, which is called the mercy seat. And it's got these great cherubim, and their wings are facing one another. They refer to this as the mercy seat. And the presence of God dwelt, and the glory of God dwelt above the mercy seat. And the high priest would go in once a year into the presence of God and offer a sacrifice for the people. Now to do this, he had to make a sacrifice for himself, for his own sins, but then had to place the sins uh, on a scapegoat and make a make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the blood, the blood of the sacrifice would then be sprinkled on the mercy seat. So man, so the Hebrew people, could come before the presence of God. There's, it's not coincidental that when Jonah receives the grace of God, he thinks of the mercy of God, the mercy seat. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Jonah recognizes that he can't just quote-unquote repent. You know, I changed my mind. I'm going to go to Nineveh now. You, God is absolutely holy. If we're going to come into his presence, there must be a basis by which we come. And it's more than just simply, I'm sorry for my sins. Sorry doesn't cut it. The Hebrew people didn't just say, I'm sorry. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. We learned that when we were in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. But Jonah knows that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats and the blood of lambs don't technically cleanse his conscience. But as Peter says... Concerning the prophets, whom the Holy Spirit carried along as they foretold the coming of Christ, it says that they longed to look into the things they were prophesying. Jonah knew that something happened in the temple signified something greater that would happen. Jonah's recognizing that his sins will be carried away by the future Messiah as far as the east is from the west. And it's the only basis by which he can cry out to God from the depths of the seas. And he does. And he does. Something else we can learn here. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I'm going to stop right there and just focus on verse 8. Those, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is the, this is the key. This is where Jonah is set free. This is where the buoyancy comes in. He recognizes in the belly of the whale, fish, I'm wearing a millstone life preserver. I have forsaken the steadfast love of God because of my idolatry. Vain idolatry means empty image worship. You say, wait a minute. I thought he was a Hebrew. The Hebrews are not idolaters. See, 
golden calf. C, the capital of Samaria. They are idolaters. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the heart of man is an idol factory. It can't not kick out idols. It's, we're always worshiping idols. Now, what is an idol? An idol is anything we put in front of God. God says in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. You shall have no other God besides me. Now, the word beside means beside, before, alongside, in the near vicinity of. I'm it. I'm Yahweh. I will have no other rival. And then the second commandment, don't make an image of anything created and worship it. So an idol, an idol is something that we place in front of God. It could be something totally legitimate. Now, the ancients worshipped literal images, but idolatry is alive and well. It's alive and well. We worship things. We place of preeminent importance things which are not ultimate. They're gifts from God, and we make them ultimate. Our careers, our relationships, our sexuality, our desires, uh, the desire to be longed for, the desire to be recognized. There's all sorts of things that we make preeminent, and, and we are idolaters. And some of you are like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, we'll just, we'll go a little, we'll dumb it down a little bit, make it a little bit easier. How many of you have ever violated at least one of the Ten Commandments at some point in time? Yeah, okay, yeah, I stole a candy bar when I was in fourth grade, so yeah, I stole once. But other than that, I'm pretty good. You're delusional. But let's just go with that, okay? Why did you steal the candy bar? Why did you commit the one sin that you can remember? Why? Because you're an idolater. Tim Keller puts it this way. Idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. You cannot, you cannot dishonor your parents, lie, violate the Sabbath, take the Lord's name in vain, covet, commit adultery, literally or figuratively, uh, or murder in your heart or literally, without, first of all, placing something else in front of God. All sin is a derivative of idolatry. And when we do that, we forsake the steadfast love of God. We forsake it. He doesn't forsake us. We forsake it. We forsake it. Now, that phrase, steadfast love, it can be translated unmerited kindness, mercy, or grace. Idolatry, when we engage in it, it, we forsake the grace of God. We're graceless. He found grace in the belly of a fish because he recognized that he'd been doing what the Ninevites are doing. He'd been doing what the pagan sailors were doing. He recognized, I'm not any different. I'm not any different from the pagan sailors. I'm not any different from the Ninevites. I'm utterly, totally lost in my sin. And that's where he met God's grace. All of our disobedience is founded in idolatry. We'll find out a little bit more about what his specific form of idolatry is on July 4th when we take a look at how ticked off he got at God for actually uh, being gracious and merciful to the Ninevites. But for you, I would encourage you, if you're unsure of what your idols are, here's some diagnostic questions. Some diagnostic questions. What drives you? What drives you? 
Um, what if you lost it would cause you to think that your life does not have meaning? Or what if you don't attain it will mean that your life will never have meaning? Those are some key diagnostic questions. Because that indicates to us what is of primary importance to us. It doesn't mean it's an idol, but it means it could be alongside God. And when our idols are threatened, we will send to protect them. We will send to acquire them. And when we do so, we forfeit the grace of God. We forfeit the grace of God. So what do we do? That's what grace is. That's what grace is. We can, we can take a look here, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in favorable time I listened to you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of, day of salvation. Here, listen carefully. Paul is speaking to people that are in a church. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Jonah was a prophet. He should have been intimately acquainted with the grace of God. But he had obviously received it at some point in time in vain. It did not kick in until he was in the depths of the sea. You are a quote-unquote religious people-ish. You come to church. Don't mistake religiosity between, with receiving the grace of God. Have you received the grace of God? How do you receive the grace of God? Very quickly, in summary, here's what Jonah did. First of all, Jonah cried out. Jonah recognized his dilemma, and he cried out. Verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. I called out to the Lord. Verse 2. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God in the book of Romans. In that same chapter, in chapter 10, he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Humble yourself and stop struggling, stop running Stop fighting and cry out. Cry out. You say, well, what do I cry out? Whatever your heart desires. Save me from myself. Save me from my idols. Save me from my pride. Save me from my sin. Save me from my lack of desire for you. Save me from my apathy. Save me from my lust. Save me from my sin. It's killing me. It's a millstone. It's a millstone. Charles Spurgeon said, the only requirement to receive the grace of God is that you know your need. That's it. There's no moral prerequisite. You don't reform yourself. Jonah didn't say, you know what? Let me work on myself, Lord, and then I'll be worthy. He's going to die. He's in the belly of a fish. Cry out. Cry out. Secondly, forsake your idols. If God has revealed to you what you have made of primary importance, forsake it. You say, Brooks, I don't know if I can come to the Lord with that kind of baggage. He already knows. 
You're not going to confess something to the Lord, and the Lord's not going to go, Oh, my goodness, can you believe Brooks is that arrogant and proud? I'm, I'm shocked. He knew me before I was formed in my mother's womb. He knows your sins of the past. He knows how you're going to sin tomorrow. He knows all of that already. That's why we can come to him with boldness to the throne of, what's it say in Hebrews? The throne of what? Grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. That's why the promise in 1 John verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9 is so poignant. Confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive and purify us from all unrighteousness. Not only does he forgive, but he purifies. That grace is not simply for justification. It's also for our sanctification. It's also for our sanctification. And then lastly, what do we see here? But with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Thank God for your storms. Thank him for the pain that he allowed you to experience this last year. And I don't know what it is. You know, I've been a Christian since 1988. I have never had, never, never had a significant time of spiritual growth that did not involve pain. That pain was often, maybe mostly, due to my sin and the pain that it brought me. But sometimes it wasn't due to my sin. Sometimes it was due to, to physical health problems and with, with Stace and in our, in our marriage and, and other things. But regardless of the source of the storms, that's when I have grown closer to the Lord. Thank Him for the fact that He loves you enough to let you hurt. Because if He didn't, you'd never cry out to him and receive his grace. So thank him and then serve him. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Jonah is spit out and then he goes to Nineveh. It's like, okay, I'm going to obey. I still don't like the Ninevites, but I'm going to obey. His heart is not totally good, but he is redeemed. He is redeemed. So serve him. What is the Lord asking you to do? How is he asking you to serve? Be prepared to go. To go. Someone on the North Liberty campus texted my wife and says, we should get t-shirts to say Nineveh or bust. I don't know about that. I kind of think it's a cool idea. Um, where's your Nineveh? Where's God calling you to be a bold witness? Not to be a bold moral example, gag me, but to be an ambassador of Christ that shares the grace of God and is gracious to people who desperately need it. And go. Go. As we close in prayer, let's just ask the Lord to pour out grace. There's one thing which will derail grace. Well, we've seen it, idolatry idolatry, but a heart filled with pride. James says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is a grace magnet. So let's humble ourselves and ask for more grace. Father, we come to you and we recognize that 
it's easy to throw stones at Jonah because he's such an easy target. Um, but, but we're not any different. Lord, you've called us to do and to say and to be things, and we've refused you thousands of times. And we find ourselves at the, in the belly of our own metaphorical fish, and we thank you, Lord, that you are so loving and gracious that you meet us there. So, Father, we humble ourselves before you. We confess our idols. We confess our sin. And we ask for more grace, saving grace, sanctifying grace, empowering grace. Lord, give us grace that Christ might be formed in us, that Christ might be glorified in our lives and proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.